Welcome to Abolition Liberation Solidarity, a Here for the Kids production. I'm Sarah Rao, your host and co-founder of Here for the Kids. We are an abolition movement dedicated to fighting the systems of oppression that stem from white supremacy, including gun violence, climate catastrophe, houselessness, and oppression of all kinds. We're going to talk more about the history and mission of Here for the Kids today, so there's no better person to have this conversation with than the co-founder of our group. For five years, she has been leading Legacy Trips, a tour group that travels through Montgomery and Selma, Alabama, walking in the footsteps of Black leaders and regular citizens who fought during the Civil Rights era. Three years ago, she left the United States to join Blacksit, a combination of the words Black and Exit to describe Black Americans who are leaving the U.S. because of systemic racism. She wrote about that experience in her wonderful book, Are We Free Yet? And she hosts the podcast Speaking of Racism. It is my profound pleasure to introduce Tina Strawn. Tina, welcome to Abolition, Liberation, Solidarity. Hi, Syrah. Hi, Tina. <laughs> Let's go back to what got us to found here for the kids. I'm just curious, what's your memory of where this idea came from and how we connected about it? If my memory serves correctly, which sometimes it doesn't, I smoke a lot of weed. <laughs> <laughs> you and I have been friends for a few years. We have worked together in a couple of different spaces, you with Race to Dinner and me with the Speaking of Racism podcast. Uh, had you and Regina Jackson, your um, co-founder of Race to Dinner, on the podcast uh, a few times, really, through the years. I think the first time was back in 2020. And so fast forward through COVID and through me moving out of the States, as you just referenced in my Blacksit journey, we have um, remained friends and stayed in touch and continue to have regular conversations um, about our complete frustration um, and fury with the United States government, both Republicans and Democrats in a variety of ways. And I know earlier this year, of course, with both of us being mothers, we have had a lot of conversations about the school shootings. And so what stands out to me is that we were having a conversation in March, at the end of March, right after the school shooting in Tennessee. I won't say that we were in this place of despair, but what I do remember is um, you and Regina's book, White Women, when that came out in November I know that we had talked about you having a lot of white folks who had received the book, read the book, felt moved by it, wanted to get involved in some way. And they were reaching out to you and saying, well, what can we get it? Like, we are the problem. It's us as white women. We are the ones that need to be break breaking down white supremacy. What can we do? And you were like, you all need to get organized, like fucking get organized. Put your resources, your money to work, to to destroy what you all have created. We are in this mess of everything, right? Of living in this society um, that is founded on and thrives on white supremacy and capitalism and the patriarchy. So you all can do something. And it was at that time, around the same time, you're having those conversations with white folks who had interacted with your book. The school shootings happen. You woke up one morning and said, I think I think I got something. I think we can get these white women to use their privilege and their power to change things. And so you called me and told me 
about this wild idea. The wild card of it was that this was a call specifically to white women. And it was that very thing that even made me want to be a part of this and say, yeah, let's do this. Because for me, this was not asking Black folks to do any more labor because we have been the ones who have been on the front lines out leading all movements of protest and movements against oppression for generations. And we are in danger just existing, right? Um, Black and brown folks and, and people of the global majority, just our very presence in a society that does not want us to live, we're already in danger. So putting together this action giving white women something to do with their anger, giving them something to do with their sadness about all of the kids that are being killed by by guns, and specifically asking them to show up, put their bodies on the line. And that, that felt like protection for the Black and Brown community. We aren't going to be the ones putting ourselves in harm's way, um, because white women are historically and statistically the ones who are the least likely to be brutalized by police. So I was I was in, and that's how I recall it. How was that kind of accurate? I, I think that that's right. And you know, what's interesting is a big part of our conversation leading up to this had been, what can we do with the fact that the Democratic Party is as fucked as a Republican <laughs> Party? <laughs> how is it that we can get out of this blue no matter who, who and my God, it is end of November 2023, and we have a Democratic president who has signed off on billions more dollars to have a genocide happening against Palestinians that we're watching. So I think we could all agree now, and like, how is this better? And it was in advance of you were moderating the film screening of Deconstructing Karen in Atlanta several weeks after March 27th. March 27th was the night or the day rather of uh, the Covenant school shooting in Nashville. And you and I had been talking about what is the call to action to white people in the audience that's not give money to Joe Biden. You know, th this was this was a conversation. And so part of this was, okay, here's the call to action. Show up on June 5th to Denver, Colorado, a quote, blue state, a state that has some of the most highest instances of gun violence. It's off the charts, right? Far higher than the national average, which is saying something because the national average is horrible. And we know that guns are the number one killer of black kids, your kids, brown kids, my kids, and importantly, white kids. So obviously, if white women want to do something, they're going to do it for their kids, right? Like, aren't you going to show up for your own kids? So you you know, you hearken back and you've said this before here for the kids is like, if your work and my work had a baby. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like hearkening back to the civil rights era. It like, this is how change happens. The difference though, is that was white allyship. White people saw black people getting beaten on TV because black people didn't have the right to vote. White people did you know, didn't have access to, to vote. White people did. So that was true allyship. They were doing something to help, quote, help other people. This June 5th was actually white people showing up for their own kids. And, you know, we know what happened. But leading up to June 5th, how are you feeling 
about all of it. How are you feeling about the white women? I mean, you and I were involved with white women very deeply in the in the months leading up to June 5th from, you know, call it April 1 to June 5th. How, what was your experience during that time? <laughs> I mean, this is so loaded. I don't know if there's enough time in the podcast for us to talk about all that we went through. You know, I, I, I will say, the first thing that I will say about my experience, if we're starting April 1st and going to June 5th, the first thing is that I had hope. After that very first Zoom call that you hosted, that public invitation for folks, I don't remember how it was done, but you know, opening this up and saying, "Does you know, we're, we want to talk about banning guns and this introduction of abolition to ban guns, not to legislate guns." And I like what you say: we are not trying to legislate inhumanity. You can't do that. Let's let's ban them, right? And that first call when over 300 people showed up early April and then immediately got to work. We had dozens of white women who really quickly assembled and started to organize and we we had <laughs> we had a movement on our hands in a very short amount of time. We we started quickly getting uh, amassing hundreds of email addresses and we just we just went to work and that felt hopeful that felt like okay if white women are ready to get off their asses and do more than thoughts and prayers and do more than you know let me go vote for the next democrat who we've been voting for for all of these years and now what we have in november of 2023 we have a couple of things like you said, we have guns that are the number one killer of kids and teens in the United States. But what we also have is a time where there is more gun legislation in our his, in, in our nation than has ever been before. So those two things coexist very nicely. If you are, you know, lobbying for more gun laws, you actually have a future in that. Like if we were the organization that wanted to, you know, link arms with people who want to legislate the shit out of these murder toys, you know, we would be very well funded, very well operational. People would love us, right? But no, we were those crazies who were like, no, ban them, like get rid of them completely. And so to see that this was not just some harebrained idea, you know, that we came up with and that people were like, okay, this actually might be the thing that could save our kids. And to see the way that white women immediately got to work. And that, for me, felt like we can actually do this. If what we are proposing is for 25,000 white women to show up at the Capitol in Denver on June 5th to demand, not to ask, not to petition, not to phone bank... <laughs> I'm, of course, I'm throwing all this out because, you know, our backgrounds in doing all of these things the Democrats tell us to do, which we've been doing for decades, and yet we still have the numbers of, of children and teenagers being killed by guns is increasing, not decreasing. So to see that this idea, this revolutionary idea of abolition, white women were, re were ready to get behind it, I felt like well, finally, they'll listen to us. Finally, we will get an executive order to ban guns and buy them back, and we will have a chance to save our kids and, and our future. You know, Tina, when you say hope, good, back to sitting here in November of 2023 and, and, and being a part of 
many protests where millions of Americans are showing up and begging our government to stop dropping bombs on Palestinians and them giving us the finger. Mm-hmm. Now I query whether 25,000, 250,000, a million white women showing up to do anything will do it. I think now we can safely say that we live in a counter-majoritarian, authoritarian, fascist, fascist Hey, that's right. How quaint. This was what, six months ago? We're like literally, we're not, we're, we're dying in dog years. We're not aging in dog years. We're dying in dog years. But you and I, one thing I distinctly remember, because you and I spoke every morning, right? We FaceTimed every morning. We believed. <laughs> we really believed. Like these white women thought that they were killing themselves. Nobody did more. That's right. Than the two of us. Nobody took more shit than the that's two of right. us. That's right. Uh, we got accused of everything, everything on the, in, in eight weeks, we got it. We went through the whole thing, right? We did. And what were like the greatest hits? We're grifters. We're stealing money. By the way, we didn't even, you and I didn't even have access to our bank accounts. We're anti-Semitic. We're anti-Black. <laughs> we're xenophobic. We're, you know, homo- we're homophobic the, and transphobic. We're homophobic, transphobic. Uh, we hate white people. Mm-hmm. We want my favorite. Maybe my uh, all of those things, but my personal favorite is we've set this whole thing up to harm to, in the hopes that white women get hurt, physically hurt on June fifth, and it, it was just the whole the whole thing, right? It was just like all of this stuff. But we believed, we truly believed, and what was kind of interesting, not really interesting to watch, is how white women started believing. And it wasn't believing in us. They started believing in themselves. And it became very clear to me that this dehumanization of themselves, why we don't have any change. They don't see themselves as people. And during that time, they started seeing themselves as people. And we all really believed. And then, I mean... Do you want to give it away? What actually happened? On, what did you what, what did you think was going to happen on well, June fifth? So that's interesting. I'm glad that you you know specifically spoke to. We watched. Not only did we believe, and we were able to inspire and you know help white women believe also and believe in themselves. We watched white women become empowered in ways that they hadn't been before. That's something that we heard over and over and over again is that they felt like they had community that they had not previously had, that they felt like they had purpose, and they felt like they had the power to do something, to not just be in despair and sit at home and worry every time they had to send their kids out the door to go to school. You know, and and that is the thing that has been missing. Sure, there have been marches, right? And that's a th- we, we we are very aware that marching and protests are a powerful form of resistance and necessary. And to what you said, we are now seeing millions of people across the planet gathering in protest against the ongoing occupation and genocide of the Palestinian people. So what you just said is key is that even though we are seeing people show up in the streets making demands to stop the murder of thousands of Palestinians, thousands of Palestinian children, we are demanding that it end, and it's falling on deaf democratic ears. So that is the reason why we, you and I, in November of 2023, are sitting right here 
talking about what we thought was going to happen, what we had hoped would happen, what we what we believed would happen in June if 25,000 white women had shown up to demand that governor, Democratic governor, Jared Polis, sign that executive order. So yeah, let's give it away. 25,000 white women did not show up. They did not show up. And there was no executive order. I mean, I don't know that we've talked about, or maybe, I mean, I know we've talked about so many things. So I think what's coming up for me in this moment, you know, as we are thinking back to June 5th, and I'm thinking about the video that was taken, I'm thinking about all of the press and all of the media that we did that day and just all that was going on for you and I. And we weren't at the Capitol on June 5th because it wasn't safe for us We because we expected there to not only be 25,000 white women showing up without permits to make a demand of the governor, we expected there to be a police presence. And that's something to be t- something of note is what do you know? Have you heard of a time where large numbers of people show up at a Capitol to make a demand of the governor and there is zero police presence? Zero. Not, zero, zero police presence. The, the cops didn't even show up for white women. I, I don't even know if we can call that a, a, effectively a protest. Can you call it a protest if the cops don't show up and show their asses to instigate violence? Yeah. So what did we have? We had a very peaceful, beautiful, connected, healing grief space for the hundreds of white women that showed up. That's what we had. But we did not have thousands, and we did not have a police presence, and we did not have Governor Polis or anyone show up to talk to these voters, these constituents, these mothers, these grandmothers, these these sisters and aunties and daughters and parents and loved ones. They, nope, they didn't take even white women seriously. So it actually now sitting where we're sitting, you know, all these months later and watching a genocide happening on the other side of the world and watching who is speaking out against the genocide of the Palestinian people and who is not. Well, of course, 25,000 white women didn't show up. And of course, the governor did not sign an executive order to ban guns. And since then, gun violence is metastasized. It's gotten even worse every single day, of of course. course. You know, I want to talk about the lack of them showing up. So thousands of them RSVP, actually like RSVP'd. And, you know, we know when you RSVP, like it's not even a good gauge. Like we were even told by people who've organized tons and tons of these are like, if you have, it's 5,000 people sign up, you already have your 25,000 because most people don't. I mean, I've gone to tons of rallies and protests and I never RSVP online. I just show up. So we had thousands of people actually RSVPing, yes. Okay. And I myself flew back and forth to Denver three weeks in a row to canvas with people and the organizers, the white women organizers in Denver were canvassing every day. I can tell you I had hundreds of of white women tell me to my face. They pulled out their phone and they're like, I'm not going to RSVP, but I have it right here in my calendar. I'll be there June 5th, right? So thousands of white women in Denver themselves said, we'll be there. So what kind of a person says that they're going to be somewhere? RSVPs, yes or doesn't, but just says, I'm going to, you know what, Tina, you're getting married on this day. I'm invited. I'm coming. 
Taylor Swift. I'm going to buy concert tickets. I'm going to go. What kind of a human being says they're going to show up to save their children, their own children, from a violent gun death and then decides that they got too crazy busy or they got scared? Or you and I remember it was a beautiful day. Maybe they wanted to go hiking in Vail that day. To me, it's somebody who has lost their soul. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a person who is extremely disconnected, distracted, and deceived into thinking that they care, and they really don't. We throw this word around so often, accountability. And that's something that I I, I also think about when I consider what was that time like for us, you and I, leading and organizing towards June 5th. We didn't do any hand-holding right so so the rsvp point is really important because as we are doing our best to figure out how to prepare for 25,000 people to show up in this space uh, making sure that we could take care of the 25,000 people like we needed to have an idea of what number are we talking about and so we went all out but that RSVP was their opportunity to hold themselves accountable to be present. And we did have, like you said, not only were the verbal commitments given to you and to those white women organizers on the ground in Denver who were canvassing, who were going door to door every day, but more than door to door, they were inviting people into their homes. There were events and activities that were planned in advance. So we were given all the information, everything indicated that we were, quite honestly, not only going to hit 25,000, we thought we were going to exceed 25,000. And let's be honest, when we look at how quickly our social media grew, you know, we are in the 30, the 40, the 50, the 60,000 in a matter of weeks. Weeks. And when we looked at the media attention and, and all of the buzz that was happening online, So many people were talking about June 5th, Denver, ban guns, and it started to spread like wildfire and celebrities started to get on board and they started to post about it. That's why we thought we not only were going to have 25,000, but that we would exceed that number because everybody was talking about going to Denver. It was beautiful to watch and hold on to that hope. So when we got to June 5th, and then June 6th, and then June 7th, and the numbers weren't there, it really was showing that the white women who said that they were going to be there and didn't show up lacked the ability to hold themselves accountable, and they were deceiving themselves into thinking that they actually gave a fuck. They were disconnected from themselves and from all of the other white women that they had promised that they would be there and participate in, they're disconnected from their humanity, which again, fast forward us to November of 2023 to allow what is happening right now by Israel and the United States, what is happening in Gaza, it is a complete disconnection from their humanity. Yeah. And you and I said this, in the back of someone's house on June 5th, after, by the way, at, you know, after we got chased out of our Airbnb by white supremacist Airbnb owners, right? which is a whole other story. We should tell that story one day. We should tell that story one day. You can't make it up, really. You, you cannot can, you make can. it up. We'll, we'll tease that for the next time. Okay. 
But we're in the backyard of a white woman's house being interviewed by journalist after journalist. People had flown in from around the world to interview us. That's right. And we said this to a white woman journalist at the super liberal Washington Post. She said, what do you what do you make of, you know, so many people said they're coming and they didn't. And you said, they're dead. White women have lost their humanity. And do you recall her response to that? Yeah, she didn't like it. <laughs> she was offended by it. She took it very personally. Yeah. And isn't that a, a a perfect description of white women? They can acknowledge, well, not all of them, right? But the ones that we are talking about that we interacted with in the early days of this movement, where they were able to see enough to say and have you and Regina show them through your book, I have to know and understand what my complicity in white su- upholding white supremacy looks like and how, how am I doing that? When they started to ask questions, they started to interrogate what would it look like for me to be someone who dismantles white supremacy and then deciding that they are going to participate in this abolitionist movement to ban guns to save their kids, their white kids, my black kids, your brown kids, all kids, just to then six weeks later, I don't know what the fuck they were doing. I don't think they had... Taylor Swift concerts to go to. I think they were sitting on their couches. I think they were, I, I got to be honest at this point, Syra. I think that the whatever direction the wind blew, and then they decided to turn and maybe hope ill of us, ill of of the work that we had done. I, I don't know. I, I mean, to be in a white woman's brain, like, the, I don't know. I can't speak to that. That's not <laughs> something that I will ever understand or, or know, um, nor do I try to figure it out anymore, um, which is why in October, we had that realization that this this is we need to take this in a different direction. On October 6th, which is bananas, that we were together on one of your legacy trips. That's right. In Montgomery, when we had this very, you know, heartfelt, it's not a thing. And it's not a thing because white people just don't give a shit. They just, the disconnect between their brains and their hearts and their minds and their humanity is too great to overcome. And then the world changed mm-hmm. on October 7th, the next day. Mm-hmm. My goodness, that doesn't that feel like it was 10 billion years ago? And it was last month. That was last month. That's so, that's Back so to hard to believe. Odd years. That, it's so hard to believe that it's only been a little over a month and Israel and the United States has killed thousands. I don't know what the number is anymore. Where are we? Of 20,000. And that's the official with with so many thousands and thousands of people missing, Palestinians Mm -hmm. missing. Mm -hmm. And it's been a month. It's been one month. You know, I want to go back just a little bit because before October 7th, so as you were saying, October 6th, uh, actually the 5th, because I think the 5th was when there was that, the the fundraiser in Atlanta. The Atlanta fundraiser. (laughs) And we were still, you know, thinking that we were going to get a quarter of a million people to show up in D.C., you know, to demand that. (laughs) It's laughable at this point what we thought we were going to get Genocide Joe to do in, (laughs) you know, in D.C. It's laughable, you know, the way that he is insisting on leaving a legacy uh, of genocide. Okay, 
But before that, what had happened, and I remember, you know, we, you and I, and a couple of others um, from the leadership team, Joe was there, Pleasance was there, and and we were having a conversation about, you know, getting ready for the fundraiser that evening in Atlanta. And one, I think you told me that the Democrats announced that Biden was going to build Trump's wall for him. Of course, they didn't say it like that. But when I heard that, I broke down. I'm I'm in tears. Like I'm I'm like checked out. I'm like what the fuck. And and there was this shrug off of the building of the wall. Well, they have to because that's what the money was earmarked for. <laughs> and so they have to spend the money to build this racist, xenophobic wall at that southern border. And this is what Trump wanted to do just a few years ago that Democrats were all up in arms about. And now Joe Biden decides to do this wonderful thing for Donald Trump and the Republicans and build the wall. And I just remember going like that was my that was the first moment, not the first that 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 just that was the the straw for me that broke the camel's back. And and actually, it really helped me to start making those other connections between wait a second, let me let's just let's just think for a moment about what's been happening here in this country. We have the building of Cop City in Atlanta. And those protesters and those people in Atlanta do not want Cop City. We do not want a militarized Disneyland where the Israeli military trains United States police officers on this fun land of this killing spree academy in Atlanta right? And thinking about, there's so many layers to the Cop City thing. I encourage people, if you don't know what's happening in Atlanta with Cop City, please go and Google search Stop Cop City, because what's happening there is horrific and given to us by Black Democrats. That's pause-worthy. That's like, let's just everybody take a just a step back and think about that was presented and, and brought forth first by Black woman Democrat Keisha Lance Bottoms, a few years back. And now, um, Andre, whatever, I can't even, doesn't even matter, the current Black Democrat mayor of Atlanta pushing this through. But here's the thing that made me go, maybe inviting a quarter of a million people, especially when we're opening it up to everyone, and it's not just white women. So it's not like white women are going to be there and they will be protected because the police don't even show up when it's white women, right? We were going to, we were opening it up to everyone. So we know what was going to happen in that case. A bunch of black and brown folks would have shown up. The police would have definitely been there. And let's look at what's happening in Atlanta. They arrested protesters and put them on federal RICO charges. In addition to killing a peaceful protester who was sitting with their hands up, getting dozens of bullets in their body. And they lied and said he was armed and he was not. They, Of course they lied. Like It just started making all, I'm putting all the pieces together about who the Democrats really are. So if there is something to, and this feels very dark to say right now in a moment where we are grieving the loss of so many lives, but if there is something to appreciate about the moment, can we appreciate the fact that the Democratic Party is showing us who they are? When, like, like you said, you and I have been talking about this, right? Because we were like, like, let's, how do we defund the Democrats? People have to wake up to understanding that they're, that, that when we say power to the people, 
that does not equate vote blue no matter who. Like there had to be something that needed to happen to break us from that myth that from that ideology, right? That's that does not move us forward, does not move us towards liberation. It keeps us stuck right the fuck where we are. It keeps us in this place of let's legislate the shit out of guns and talk about raising age limits and increasing how long it takes to get a permit to buy. Like all of this nonsense that doesn't actually affect the number of kids and teens being killed by guns. It doesn't affect it. It's not bringing it down. What kind of nonsense is this what 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 place are we li- what kind of place are we living in so these were just some of the connections that i that i know we were making and then october 7th happens well back to october 5th we were sitting on a couch in atlanta mm-hmm. to go to a fundraiser that night at the home of a white woman who was quote all in for here for the kids even came on june 5th to denver from atlanta and it was the first time i had and you said i'm out i can't go tonight i don't feel well i feel sick and all of it smart move so I went with Joe Lorenz, who's a tall white woman, and I'm a short terrorist, apparently, brown terrorist, and um, go to this woman's house in a very expensive part of Atlanta. And it's the first time I was in a, one of these rooms with white men. So a handful of white husbands of these white women came, and I spoke the way I always speak. This is literally the way I speak. Right. And I was told, by the way, very clear to me in the room how I was being perceived, which was people hated me. I could feel the energy. And after I spoke, all the white men went to go talk to Joe. I'll just say here, I felt that this was going to happen. I, I did not want you to go. I did not feel like it I would know. be safe. I, you and, said that. You yeah. said don't go. I did not. I did <laughs> yeah. not. I did not no, feel no, like no. you would be safe. Right. Yeah. No. And it was not. And I was told that I was militant. It was very clear that it went over poorly. They were supposed to raise $100,000. I don't know that they even raised... A thousand, whatever it was like, nothing, right? And so all the, you know, October fifth and October sixth, we have this decision. We're not going to. We're not. March 9th was supposed to be two hundred fifty thousand. Everybody, Washington D.C. Mall, you know, Joe Biden ban guns and sign a sign an, an order for a climate emergency. Which, by the way, he just bowed out of the International Climate Summit for the first time. In into like he's not going because you know America is not the biggest climate criminal in the world. But the goal was to ban guns and to ban fossil fuels March 9th. And we said, we're going to call it. And then October 7th happened. And here we are. So what we can, let's bring us to now. You, um, I would be remiss if we didn't give you uh, an opportunity to to say in a nutshell, and I think we kind of have a, a good idea why, you decided I need to step away from the leadership team of Here for the Kids. Why? Because what is needed now in this moment is a hell of a lot of education around abolition. And that's not something that I want to do. I have decided I'm going to go back to doing what I was doing, what I have been doing for these years. And that's twofold, mostly. One, it's my legacy trips, taking folks and a lot of these folks over these five years and these 19 legacy trips that we've had, it is the majority of them are white people who come from all over the country to walk through these spaces in Montgomery and in Selma. And I, and I think the Selma piece is so important, uh, especially to this conversation, because that also recognizing what our ancestors did, our black civil rights leaders alongside everyday people, what they did 
in March of 1965 in going across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and being met with police brutality and being turned away, being brutalized before being turned away, right? But them continuing to return and go back until they were ultimately able to make it from Selma to Montgomery. And because they did, their numbers started small. Their numbers on Bloody Sunday were in the hundreds, so very similar to what we had. And then by the time they were able to complete that four-day journey from Selma to Montgomery, because of all the media coverage, their numbers swelled to 50,000 by the time they made it to the capital in Montgomery. And because of that, we got the Voting Rights Act. And so it was that blueprint for us that made us believe and have hope that we could make this change and this shift. And then, like I said, by the time we got to October, and not only did we not see the numbers in June, I'm also looking at Stop Cop City and looking at the Tennessee legislators that were put out from the floor for speaking out against gun violence, the climate change um, march that took place in New York in September. 75,000 people showed up to demand that Biden ban fossil fuel. The Biden administration didn't blink. So all of these things just said to me and clarified to me that we are not the people that we were in the 50s and the 60s who knew how to organize and show up to get shit done Oh, and in terms of organizing and showing up and getting shit done, like another example, the Montgomery bus boycott. How many people, how many Black people had to participate in that to ultimately desegregate the buses in Montgomery? 100%. 100% of the Black people in Montgomery participated over a year to make that happen. We just, that's not who we are. That's not who we are as a people today. We are, they, and so what is needed is back to the basics. Lay the foundation. And that's what I know needs to take place. And I know that's the direction that you really are passionate about taking it. And that's what is happening now. And I will go back to continuing my legacy trips and having these experiences with folks who want to join us in Alabama for those, as well as working with the Black community who are ready to leave the plantation that is the United States of America and be a part of the Blacksit social and political movement and get out of the U.S. like I have been for the past three and a half years, I want to focus there. I want to focus on, it's the same thing I've been focusing on for years, Black liberation, which is collective liberation, which is Palestinian liberation. And all, uh, you know, we so many white people, I don't think they forgot. I think they were never committed to collective liberation, as they are showing now, as we are living through this genocide. And not only in Gaza, but now we're being you know, shown all of the other genocides that are happening in the Congo and the Sudan and, and, and in other places around the world. And people have a lot of work to do. And a foundation being laid of abolition is what's necessary. So it's just time for me to step back and, and keep doing what I've been doing. Ugh. Woo. All right, Tina. Well, I'm so beyond grateful that we did this together. I am too. Like forever, forever. You're one of the best people I've ever known. We are so lucky to have had you on our team. And I know you're still around and that's right. Part of the community and all of that. And um, 
I just hope for all of us, that's it, that truly we're, we're seeing this again in the end. I, I will, I will end on this note. Someone was saying like, shouldn't there be a, a, assigned to white people? If the folks who are pro-Palestinian, pro-ending of the genocide, it's like 99% of the global majority, the global South, East Asian, South Asian, Central Americans, Mexicans, Black people, Africans, like everybody who's not white around the planet, Indonesians, look at what people are risking their lives in Africa and in Asia and in Central America to show up in the millions. Mm-hmm. shouldn't it be a sign that maybe if you're not on that side the only other side you're on is white supremacy you're literally you're literally on the side of white supremacy and that's what we're seeing and it's continuing the genocide is continuing so back to who has the power it's white people specifically mm-hmm. white americans because mm-hmm. we're behind this that's right and so you know i do have hope for the future but it's going to take white people to pull their heads out of their fucking asses and actually con- connect their brains with their hearts and their humanity to actually do something. But they are too bogged down in consumption and power. Consumption and power. So that's where we are. I hope the next time you come on this podcast, it will be different, that we will be in a different place. I hope but so. like you, I don't know. I don't my hope is is dwindling. It's not it's not been extinguished because I'm hopeful by are cross-racial intersectional solidarity in a way that we've never seen. We have never seen this this level of cross-racial solidarity. The only race that's not showing up to the to the right side is the are the white people. So no. hopefully they'll do that. I love you, Tina. Thank you so much. I love you too. Thank you. And I hope the next time I see you, it's over here in Costa Rica. Well, it's going to. You know I'm coming soon. <laughs> Tina Strun is an author, activist, and podcast host. Go read her book, Are We Free Yet? Check out Legacy Trips and listen to her podcast, Speaking of Racism. For more information on how you can get involved, please visit our website, here for the number four, thekids.com. There you can learn more about our mission, make a donation to help support our work, and buy our Here for the Kids merchandise. Please also follow us on social media at Here for the Kids Action on Instagram. Please share our posts and tell your friends. Our podcast and newsletter are both hosted through Substack. Sign up for our Substack to get our latest newsletter issues plus alerts for every new podcast episode. Visit hereforthekids.substack.com. And if you like this podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening. If you didn't like it, please don't do that. Leaving a quick five-star rating helps new folks discover us, so please take a moment to do that. Subscribe to this show in your favorite podcast player to get alerted to new episodes. And of course, share the show with your friends, your family, your coworkers. Abolition Liberation Solidarity is a Here for the Kids production. Our producer and editor is Heath Rosella. I'm Sarah Rao, co-founder of Here for the Kids and your host and executive producer. We will have new episodes every two weeks. Please join us again soon. <laughs>